Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before we dive into the episode today, I just want to thank everyone who has left a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is one of the best ways that you can support my work short of actually subscribing to my website. So to those of you who've already done this, thank you so much. To those of you who are looking for a way to support me, consider taking 30 seconds and leaving a review. Okay, now on to the episode. My guest today is Francis Haugen. Francis is a data engineer, scientist, and whistleblower. We discuss the psychological effect of Instagram on teenagers. We discuss the subculture of Tumblr. We discuss the cross-check system at Facebook. We discuss Facebook's policy toward misinformation and much more. This conversation took place before Elon Musk bought Twitter, so we don't discuss that. But if you want my two-second take on it, it strikes me as a good thing. Elon Musk has a healthier attitude toward free speech than the Twitter censors have had thus far. For instance, I doubt a Twitter run by Elon would have censored the Hunter Biden laptop story or the lab leak hypothesis or you know, tweets that don't toe the line on trans issues. But a lot of people seem to think the sky is falling, which is strange. I just don't see anything in Elon's history which would lead me to think that he wants to turn Twitter into a right-wing cesspool or censor people on the left or simply use Twitter for personal gain related to his other companies. So there's a lot of hyperventilating for no good reason, in my view. Anyway, we didn't get to talk about that here. And unfortunately, Frances had to leave early, so I didn't get nearly as much time with her as I intended to. But we ended up packing a lot into the short time we had. I really enjoyed this one. I think you will too. So without further ado, Frances Haugen. Frances Haugen, thank you so much for coming on my show. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. So um, I assume most of my audience will be aware of the general shape of who you are. But uh, if you can just give a little bit of a summary of sort of where you're from, how you came to be involved in tech and work at places like Google, Pinterest, and Facebook, and so forth. My name is Francis Haugen. I am an algorithmic specialist. I have worked on um, Google search quality. I worked on Pinterest on ranking and pin selection for the home feed. I helped build out the computer vision team at Yelp. And then I ended up at Facebook working on civic misinformation. While I was at Facebook, I worked on civic misinformation, influence modeling, and later on counter-espionage as part of the threat intelligence team. And I felt that the public did not have the information they needed about how Facebook was operating or the consequences of the choices that Facebook had made. And that if the public did not receive that information, I didn't believe it was going to be possible for, I believe that there were significant threats to public safety that could not be resolved in isolation at Facebook. So rewind to your time at Google. I had Tristan Harris on this podcast many months ago after he was on The Social Dilemma. 
And he's been great in terms of talking about how these profit-seeking tech companies are optimizing for our time spent on the platform. And unless they're pushed by regulators or the public are not naturally going to give any care or concern to whether these things are, are actually making us happier, making us more connected rather than more isolated. It has a lot of overlap with the documents that you leaked from Facebook. So I'm curious, did you overlap with Tristan at all while you were at Google? Were you aware of him? I never met Tristan until I think sometime in 2020. Uh, one of the things that is important for people to understand is that uh, algorithms only do what we ask them to do. They may do it in ways that we never anticipated. They may have lots of side effects. Um, and unless we're really careful about monitoring them and then figuring out ways to counter, they'll take all the shortcuts they can to get from point A to A to B. And if we don't like shortcuts they take, we have to both ask the question, is the shortcut happening? And then if it is, figure out ways around it, like get them back on, on track. Um, Tristan has done a, a really good job of helping people to become more aware that just because like a product is free doesn't mean that we're not paying costs for it. And in the case of Facebook, Facebook made choices to try to get people to make more content. Namely, they switched from just trying to optimize for like how long we're on Facebook to trying to optimize for like how much interaction could they get from the people using Facebook. And it had the side effect of that because it is easier to elicit a reaction from someone using anger or hate, it ended up giving more reach and distribution to the most extreme content. Uh, I'm really glad that Tristan opened that conversation. And I'm glad that I've gotten a chance to contribute to making it even deeper by going into like what I've worked on for most of my career, which is how algorithmic products. So what I found interesting about you is that if I think of all the sort of famous whistleblowers of my lifetime, you seem to be a fairly measured whistleblower in the sense that obviously you had to work quite hard to probably collect and, and leak the papers that we now call the Facebook papers that were reported on in the journal and revealed all of the all of Facebook's awareness of the problems and neglect of the problems. But you've never gone as far as to really demonize Zuckerberg or any of the, you've portrayed them as basically more or less psychologically normal people in an incentive structure that cause immense harm. And I've, I found that to be pretty interesting about, do you see yourself that way? And like, where does that come from? I want to be a little, have a little bit of subtlety there. So I, I don't know Mark personally. I've never met him. I've never, I think with any of the executives of, of Facebook directly, but I have interacted with lots and lots of individual contributors, mid-level people at Facebook. And across the board, the thing that I saw was that the Facebook is largely populated by kind, conscientious people who genuinely value connection. Right. Like you think about the kinds of people who work at a social media company, they're people who value as a thing to spend your life working on connecting people. And those kinds of people are generally nice people. The issue, though, is that there is an ideology inside the company that does not recognize um, power and it doesn't uh, recognize hierarchy or, or power differentials. Right. It's obsessed with flatness. Um, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but like Facebook has the largest open floor plan office in the world. You know, it's a, it's a quarter of a mile long. It seats 5,000 people. It's so big. It takes like 10 minutes to walk to a 30 minute meeting. If you're on opposite ends, 15 minutes, maybe. And part of the reason that they do that is that uh, if you don't acknowledge that you have power, you don't have to acknowledge that you have responsibility either. Um, and so Facebook often talks about this idea that they're just a mirror, right? That, that, you know, you see things and you're unhappy what you see on Facebook, but 
let's be honest, like there's always been bad things in the world. Like don't, don't put on us that like you're now seeing things that you don't like. And the way I look at it is, you know, we can come in there and say like Facebook is evil. Like we, we can do that. We can come in there and say that, but we steal from ourselves an opportunity to learn about how do organizational choices have real consequences. So Facebook didn't have to choose that as their ideology. They didn't have to have a system that valued kind of like we could call it algorithmic governance over human governance, right? Like they have a system where as long as you move the metrics up, you can do whatever you want. Like they, they celebrate that in orientation, but like if, as long, and that works, that worked for a long time for Facebook, as long as the metrics themselves don't become the problem. And I think the thing that Tristan has done a really good job of, of illuminating is that, you know, we have been putting in the hands of, of private companies that are being evaluated on very narrow criteria. Like they've been measured on like, how much profit do they make? How much money do they have to spend to get that profit? And, the, and when we have systems like that, those systems aren't optimized for, does it cause us joy? Does it actually make our community stronger or the world you know, more resilient? And so I think part of why I try to be so careful is I think a lot of the problems that I have outlined algorithmically, we see on other products, right? Like when I worked at, at, at Pinterest, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but Pinterest is not for women in other parts of the world. Like in the United States, it's like 80% women, 20% men, or at least it was when I worked there. But in other countries, it's only like 60-40. And the reason for that is when Pinterest was taking off in the United States, there wasn't gender in the model. Like they didn't, it was, it was largely built by guys, mostly algorithmic parts. They didn't even think gender was relevant, but it meant that when men showed up on the site, because a lot of the early users were women and they searched for something like shoes and they only saw women's shoes, they were like, oh, Pinterest isn't for me. But by the time they went abroad, they'd recognized they had this gender gap and they started actually making sure that there was things like gender in the model. And a lot more men connected with it as, as a result. These kinds of blind spots exist on lots and lots of issues, right? Like in the United States, we see the most sanitized version of Facebook that exists in the world. Like one of the things that came out from my disclosures was that um, Facebook spent, at least in 2021, spent uh, 87% of its operational budget for misinformation. So that's things like third-party fact-checking moderators, 87% of that budget went to English, even though about 9% of users spoke English. There's probably a billion users in the world, largely in South America, in African countries, in Southeast Asia, where Facebook is the internet. Like you don't get a choice to use Facebook or not use Facebook because like Facebook went in there and bought the right to be the internet in those places. And they said, if you use Facebook, we'll pay for your data. It'll be free. But if you want to use the open internet, now you're going to pay for it yourself. And so those people use like the baseline version of Facebook. Like Facebook has chosen not to build safety systems for them, but they also don't have a choice to leave the product because it, it is the internet. When part of why I don't demonize Facebook is I think all the individual choices that led us to that scenario, it's really important to understand that they were choices so that we can make different choices in the future or so that other tech companies can potentially be more mindful and how they treat other countries when they go into those countries. All right. So let's talk about one of the major strains of data revealed in, in the documents you released, which is the effect of social media and Instagram in particular on mental health and body image in teenagers and possibly preteens and with a, a skewed effect more on girls than on boys. I was just recently talking to a few people about TikTok and learned, as I think many people know, that in China... TikTok has all of these built-in controls, like you can't use it past 10 p.m. And, you know, like TikTok is a different app in China. It's, it's regulated. 
and you can't, you know, it, it automatically logs you out if you spend more than X number of minutes on it. Whereas TikTok in America is just so addictive. It is incredibly addictive and there's no limits on it. And it's like what it's feeding you is just like little snippets of not very useful, let's say, content. So can you talk a little bit about what the documents revealed about Facebook's knowledge of what Instagram was doing to, in particular, teenage girls? Um, so one of the core parts of my disclosures detailed what Facebook knew about its effect on teenagers, on children, and its plans for launching Instagram kits. Facebook's own documents describe Instagram's impact on kids as, as not only is Instagram bad for kids, it's actually substantially worse than other forms of social media. Because while you're totally right, the TikTok algorithm is very addictive. It is um, optimized for, it's a product optimized for short engagement content. It's largely about performances and doing fun stuff with your friends. Like it's a, it's a place where when you go, it, it generally makes you happy. Snapchat is about faces and about, you know, augmented reality. Reddit is at least vaguely about ideas. But Instagram is about social comparison. You know, I'm comparing my life to yours and about bodies. And, and that has some pretty serious consequences. So Facebook has run the same experiment across multiple different contexts, um, both on Facebook and on Instagram, which is one of the reasons why I often say like a lot of the problems that I've been talking about, about algorithms, they're not meta, they're not Facebook specific problems. They are problems across lots of products that have um, engagement-based ranking. Facebook has run the same experiment over and over again, where you start out with some pretty centrist interests. So in the case of eating disorders, um, you can follow healthy eating, healthy recipes. And just by clicking on the content they provide you and like following the hashtags they suggest, over the course of a couple of weeks, you get led because the algorithm is always looking for like, what's, what's the next little rabbit hole you might be seduced down? They're always trying to like, you know, step you up the staircase. Because they're doing that, you can go from healthy eating to content that either legitimizes eating disorders or like mm -hmm. celebrates them mm -hmm. on the order of two or three weeks. And this is something that I discovered that experiment in the context of a document that was, was talking explicitly about the idea. Some people on the outside have said, this is happening. And they were like, let's go check it out. Let's see if it's true. And they're like, yep, yep, it is. And yet, like I talked about before, the fundamental problem I see at Facebook is about um, a system, like an ideology that so believes in flatness that it has trouble acknowledging the idea that they have power or that they have responsibility for the consequences of those choices. And so um, I want to uh, flag a, a real quick thing. So I, uh, in philosophy, we talk about the idea of you can either ask people, what are your values? Like, what is meaningful to you? Um, or you can go and look at the actions that people take and say, what does this imply about their values? In the case of Facebook, you know, you talk about that idea that in, in China, they cut you off at 10 o'clock, right? They say, oh, it's your bedtime, go to bed. So that is an authoritarian lens. Facebook right now has stepped in and said, hey, we're at least willing to acknowledge like there's some, there's some, some problems going on here. I think TikTok does the same thing where if you use it for 20 minutes, they'll pop up a little thing saying, do you want to go do something else now? And let's be honest, when you see that warning, usually people hit dismiss, right? Let's imagine Facebook meta wanted to come in and say, we value your autonomy and your dignity. So at noon or at six, when you still have willpower, because let's be honest, everyone has willpower at eight in the morning. We don't all necessarily have willpower at like 10 or 11 at night. Imagine if at dinner time or at lunch, they said, hey, when do you want to go to bed tonight? Like we're on the same team. When do you want to go to bed? And imagine if they began to slow the app down 
little by little by little for the hour before you went to bed. So that when it got to be about your bedtime, you were like, huh, Instagram is not as compelling to me as it was three hours ago. Like it's not as like catchy and like, you know, draws me in. That would be a way of dealing with addiction or like dealing with this problematic use that was saying, I value your ability to make choices. I acknowledge I have a lot of power because I've made a very sticky product, but I value your autonomy and your dignity. I'm going to help to make sure you always get to execute it. And, and I think that's the thing that's missing right now is that if you'll notice, Instagram had never rolled out parental controls until I think like a couple of weeks ago. Like it might be a month, month and a half ago. They had 10 years to roll out parental controls and they chose to in the aftermath of the disclosures. And so I think it's one of these things where I'm hoping that tech companies can, or, or that people, not just tech companies, that people start waking up and saying, we deserve software that explicitly shows us, doesn't just tell us, shows us that it values our autonomy and our dignity because that's what we deserve. Yeah. So a lot of directions we could go there. But one thing I want to pick up on is I, you know, I remember being in high school, being 15, 16 years old. This would have been, you know, 2012, say, and getting a Tumblr because a girl that I liked had a Tumblr. And, you know, just going all the way down the rabbit hole of her page and her friends pages and all in my grade and seeing this culture of essentially all of these posts which pretended or on their face were about solving mental illness problems and de-shaming, getting rid of shame around body image issues and eating disorders. But I could see there was a real undercurrent of actually glorifying a lifestyle of cutting yourself, of eating disorders. And there was something quite unhealthy actually about all of it. And people spent, I mean, teenage girls in, in my school, a certain subset spent a very large amount of time on the platform. It was a world. And it was a world that was an escape from the real world and led to actual behaviors that I could see were increasing people's depression and anxiety. I think it's taken a long time for the wider public to acknowledge that that is, is a reality that platforms should take some responsibility for. Part of why this is such an important issue for me is beyond the fact that, that I've had people in my life die from eating disorders. So like mm-hmm. eating disorders are, are not, they're not trivial. It is not a you know, superficial issue. It's an issue of that this is a, a mental health disorder that kills people, right? Um, I was 14 years old when I had a friend die for the first time of um, an eating disorder. Uh, literally her heart stopped because she had bulimia and her electrolytes were out of balance. And um, a thing that we need to keep in mind is that not all people are impacted by social media equally. And part of the reason why we need to bring more voices to the table, like that's the thing I always come back to. I'm like, I am not the solution. Like any system where I am the solution, we've already failed, right? The real issue is we need more people at the the table, more perspectives, more stakeholders who actually have the ability to influence things is that the people who are at greatest risk for harm are people who are isolated in various ways. You know, maybe they are physically isolated. Like, you know, you move to a new city, you live in a rural community, you have a disability, uh, you're older, um, you turn more to social media for your socialization because it's, it's something that is accessible to you and it's, it's easy. It might be that you are economically marginalized. Like a lot of things where we socialize in person cost money. And the public infrastructure we used to have to facilitate these interactions, you know, our bowling leagues, our um, people going to churches, all these things where we used to have a scaffolding where we had an in-person safety net for socialization, that's atrophying away. You know, it could be that you are younger, right? You know, kids are getting their driver's licenses less and less, partially because 
turn to these online forms of socialization. And like COVID made it significantly worse because now that was like the only option in a lot of cases. And the thing that people need to understand is that harm is concentrated on people who are overexposed. So the median person might be okay-ish on on social media. Like 20% of kids are not okay. And maybe five or 10% of kids are really not okay. And so there's this question of who gets to weigh the trade-offs on like, what do those kids deserve? And it's my position that it's not, it's not enough to say, oh, it's the parent's responsibility. Like parents are trying really, really hard right now, but these products are designed to be habit forming. They're designed to be sticky. And so I, I think it's a, a, you know, fighting with one arm behind our backs to say like, this is, this is not a problem that we, we should solve together. It's a problem like parents should solve that problem. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree. I think there's a, there's been a lot of studies coming out showing that actually Instagram and Facebook have pretty small effect sizes on people's mental health, but that can really mask a huge effect that's concentrated on a very small number of people, right? Like there's kind of a framing, a framing fallacy in, in the way those things come out. That's true on every single harm type on social networks. So social networks. So like one of the major areas that I want to work on in the next year is around how do we begin bringing more um, tools for education? Um, because the patterns of social media are very different than the patterns that we naturally think in. Like, you know, I don't know if you've, you've ever taken a statistics class or not, um, or if you remember your statistics class, if you have taken one, but like we have this concept known as a normal distribution. And so the idea of a normal distribution is like, you know, it's kind of a curve, you know, most of the things are in the middle, just a little bit on the outsides. It's a normal distribution. It's a, it's a bell curve on social media, on social networks, almost every single pattern is something known as a power law. There's a very small number of people who get a huge amount of impact. It could be a small number of people have most of the voice, small number of posts have most of the reach, a small number of groups have most of the reach and impact, or it could be things like harms. A small fraction of people get most of the hate speech. A small number of people give most of the hate speech. It becomes this thing where we can't think anymore in averages. We have to think about it in terms of what parts of the population are either concentrating harm or are concentrated sources of harm. So that brings me to another point. This was brought out by the parts of the Facebook papers that talked about the cross-check system, which was this system by which essentially VIP users could flout the policies and TOS guidelines that other Facebook users would have to follow so they could post things that would normally get taken down, but because they had this sort of secret VIP status, first class status. This goes back to your point about Facebook's ideology of of not being hierarchical. I mean, I'm always suspicious of, of any organization that claims to have outgrown the human tendency towards hierarchy. I'm always looking for how has the hierarchy actually been veiled, masked? So can you talk a little bit about the cross-check phenomenon? What was that and how did that play out? Sure, totally. So for, for those who have not followed the papers closely, cross-check was a program that was established initially because um, Facebook has come out and said, you know, yes, there is some harm on Facebook, but don't worry, AI will save us. The only problem is that all algorithmic systems have false positives. So you can either choose to um, capture most of the harm, like be like, let's get most of the bad things. Let's make sure we take them down um, or demote them. Or you can say, we want as infrequently as possible to accidentally take, take down something that was good. And so Facebook has tuned those systems where in the case of hate speech, um, internal documents were saying that only three to 5% of hate speech was being taken down. So 97% was being left up. Uh, 
because like hate speech is actually kind of an ambiguous thing. Like it requires all this context. And so just like all of Facebook's AI systems, Facebook came in there and said, we don't want to accidentally take down a good thing on average more than like once in 20 times. And this actually translates to in the real world more like one in 10 times we're going to make a mistake and take something down that we shouldn't have taken down. But the problem is that when a celebrity has something innocuous taken down, it becomes like a major PR incident. And so Facebook's policy teams were getting tired of having all these fire drills. Sometimes the fire drills would go all the way up to the level of like vice presidents and presidents. They were like, we don't want to deal with this. It's too much work. We're going to make a list of about 5 million people, 6 million people, um, where we say these people are our VIPs. They are, um, originally they called it shielding. You can see why they changed that name. We're going to shield them from being acted upon because we don't want to deal with the blowback. And then Facebook came out. And like you're saying, whenever people say like, oh, there's, there's no power differential, that you look a little more closely at what's being hidden. Facebook came out and repeatedly said, and this is well documented in our SEC claim, we treat all users the same. Our, our TOS, our terms of service, we, those are the rules for everyone. It's like one set of rules for everyone. But in reality, for many safety systems, they're like, yes, we have this cross-check program, but it's more like a second check. You know, it's a cross-check. We want to get a, a, another pair of eyes on it before we take the content down. So ignoring the fact that justice delayed is justice denied, you know, if you wait a day, if you wait three days to take something down, it's going to get like 75% of the distribution it would have gone on its own if you hadn't intervened. But ignoring that part, the reality was that for many safety systems, Facebook did not want to staff the budget. They didn't want to allocate the budget to have enough people actually watching those cues and checking the content that they just said, hey, but for these safety systems, we're just going to whitelist you. So if you're one of these VIP users, it doesn't matter what you said. It's just going to sail through because we don't, we don't want to even invest the budget to make sure that another set of eyes gets looked at it. And that has really serious consequences. Um, I think the, the, most, the most famous case of this was there was a soccer player out of Brazil who was accused of raping someone. And to try to silence her, he attempted to shame her publicly um, by showing um, what's known as non-consensual naked imagery. He basically said, showed a, a naked picture he had taken of her. He showed a picture, a, a naked picture of her on a live stream saying, look at her. She's, you can't trust her. Um, and it led to her being highly victimized, right? Like she had to move. She was um, uh, like, she was stalked. There was a bunch of things that happened because he basically, he had one of the top 20 Instagram accounts in the world. It might've even been like top 15. And he weaponized that popularity. And the fact that that stayed up for three days, like 55 million people saw it before it got taken down. And that was because he was in the cross-check program. Like he would have otherwise, as soon as it got flagged, it would have gone taken down. But because he was in the special tier, it was allowed to continue propagating for far, far longer than it should have. All right, let's talk about misinformation. Um, this is a topic that I've, I've thought quite a bit about and I found myself continually frustrated by the misapplication of the label misinformation to stories that end up being vindicated in the fullness of time and the very poor job that I think the, the censors at big tech companies have done of picking and choosing which things to call misinformation. But I guess let's just start with the civic integrity program that you've talked about at Facebook. You know, what was that? What were Facebook's efforts to curb misinformation? How did they go? And, and what became of them after the 2020 election? So you're talking about two different topics, and I want to make sure we don't complete them. So um, a number of people have been like, oh, Francis worked on 
the team that took down Hunter Biden's laptop. I actually did not work on third party fact checking. So the, the core misinfo team, the much larger misinformation team was focused on third party fact checking and third party fact checking was aimed at viral misinformation. So the things that like take off on the platform um, and it was largely focused on the United States. So even though Facebook told people around the world, told people in languages that had no third party fact checkers, that they were committed to third party fact checking and they had a, an international program with over 80 partners, they were mostly focused in the United States and they were mostly fa- focused on, on English. They would go in there and give journalists an opportunity to pick out stories that looked like they were going to go viral and people could write journalist articles detailing like, is this true? And I, I totally agree with you that this is like, um, I think it's a, it's too crude a way of approaching it. I think there are other programs like um, there's a group called Public Editor. And instead of saying this article is true or like this article is false, they go in there and, and break it out much more discreetly so that when people are trying to parse like, what is this thing? They, there's um, a lot more nuance. My team, which was part of Civic Integrity, so Civic Integrity was the part of Facebook that was charged with making sure that Facebook was a positive impact on society and on politics. And the, my team was specifically on all the places in the world that didn't have third-party fact-checking, which was in reality, most of the world. Um, and in times of crisis, because like when a bomb goes off, when there is a war, various things. When there's a crisis, often third-party fact-checking doesn't move fast enough to actually be able to address those harms. So my team was everything outside of third-party fact-checking, but still focused on misinformation. I, I think one thing that's really important to remember is we are always faced with these choices on what are the strategies we want to use for safety. So Facebook has told us up till now, um, they've, they've been very clever. You know, they've framed to us that the argument that we get to have with each other is around censorship. That's our only tool. We only have one tool in our toolbox. And the only real question is like, how often and for what things do we apply that tool? My goal with bringing forward the documents that I did was to show that Facebook has 20 or 30 tools that they already know about, maybe more, like maybe more like 60 tools that they already know about just in the documents that don't involve content. They involve product choices that Facebook made for business purposes. You know, they wanted more content distributing the system. They wanted to figure out these ways of, of keeping us on the product longer. And then a lot of those choices had consequences of giving the most reach to the most extreme ideas. And so um, when people talk about third-party fact-checking or talk about censorship, I feel like somewhere inside of Facebook, there's a a communications person who's like, excellent, because we're never going to agree on censorship. What I think we could agree on is like, should people have to click on a link before they reshare it, right? Or once content gets beyond friends of friends, should you have to choose to keep propagating it? Should you have to copy and paste or should you be able to just like click a button? Because just that change alone saying like, once it gets beyond friend of friends, when you're resharing it, so it's like Alice writes something, her friend Bob reshares it, Lance and Carol's free, Carol reshares it. Now Dan needs to choose. Do I copy and paste this or do I just, you know, not, not propagate it on? Adding that little moment of reflection, that moment of choice has the same impact on misinformation as the entire third-party fact-checking program. And the reason why I feel so passionate about this, beyond that I, I do care a lot about freedom of speech, is that that solution works no matter what language you speak. And you know how I talked about earlier, there's like a billion people in the world where Facebook is the internet. Uh, we need to have safety systems. We need to have safety strategies that keep those billion people safe because they don't get to choose to leave. So there is a basic tension for Facebook, which is 
never going to go away, which is that it's like the tobacco companies, right? There, there's no way to avoid the fact that me smoking more cigarettes both makes them more money and shortens my life. It's a fundamental fact trade-off that doesn't go away. And Facebook faces this in every way. Like all of the, my assumption is all the 60 tools that you're talking about basically take the public side of this trade-off. It's like, you know, it's harder to share things that piss me off that I'm really emotional about and Facebook gets less engagement as a result. And so it really just becomes a matter of what is the equilibrium that we reach with Facebook? Like we've reached an equilibrium with the tobacco companies where they can no longer lie about what tobacco, smoking tobacco does. Everyone knows how associated it is with cancer and poor health results. People that go into it are at the very least going into it knowing what they're getting into. But at the same time, you know, cigarette companies can't advertise everywhere, right? They can't advertise in places where we've decided kids might be vulnerable to them. So what is the equilibrium that you see us reaching with a company like Facebook and and with big tech companies in general? One of these reasons why I can be so optimistic, like people sometimes are like, Francis, you're so positive. Like, isn't this a lot worse than we think it is? Like, why are you so sure that there's a path forward we can all be happy with? So I totally agree with you. There's many parallels with tobacco, right? In the case of a tobacco company, like there's literally a one-to-one trade-off of like, thing that you smoke more, more cigarettes, they get more money. Also, you die faster. Also, you're like really unhappy along the way because like having emphysema, really not pleasant. What's really interesting is like, let's talk about kids and eating disorders. Like one possible way forward is just to say like, hey, what if we came in and said, you know, we're not even going to say like, pro-anorexia content is bad. We're just going to say, hey, we know these algorithms when left to their own devices will push people towards rabbit holes. We could come in there and say, hey, we're going to intentionally never have your feed be about more than uh, 10% of it be about any one topical area or more than 5% of it ever be about one topical area. And all the time, we're going to make sure a third of your feed is stuff that we're seeing is like long-term interests for people. Like we're going to always be trying to like broaden your horizons and give you different paths in life. What's really interesting about all this is it seems like it's a choice. Like we either can have like more money for Facebook or we can have like more live kids. But it's really a question about should Facebook be allowed to operate on its own? Because operating on its own, it has been optimizing for short-term returns. And I think there's a real opportunity here where like, for example, like let's say we said like, we know that the algorithms on their own rabbit hole people, we're going to intentionally say, you can never show more than 5% of the feed, 10% of the feed on a single thing. The solution to pollution is solution in some cases. And what's interesting is you might actually discover more things you love. Like you might be a more long-term user of Instagram because you were happier. And I think that's a real thing that's happened for Facebook is that Facebook made decisions that were really critical for short time frames, and they and because they didn't want to make conscious choices, they wanted to be ruled by the algorithm instead of being ruled by people. Like there, there are documents inside of, of Facebook that say we can actually look at WhatsApp as some guidance here. Like WhatsApp, because they cannot be governed by data because they're a privacy conscious app, they have to sit and have like long conversations and like figure out together like what would actually make people happy, like what would meet their needs, like what do people what would make our product better? Like they have to have humans making these choices. They can't abdicate control to did the metrics go up. And the reality is metrics go up works on a lot of things. It can work for a long time, but it can also trap you in short-term thinking. 
because often there are short-term benefits, but long-term harms. And in the case of like toxicity on Facebook or Instagram, making people feel bad, the reality is like, that's part of why people shift to TikTok. Like one of the things that TikTok actually cares about is can we keep people happy? And I don't, I don't like all the political ideology behind TikTok. Like TikTok is exactly as you say, there's a lot of authoritarianism designed into TikTok. But there's also a thing of that when we refuse to acknowledge our own agency, like when we, when we, when we're too afraid to step up and say, Hey, I'm willing to acknowledge my power. I'm also willing to acknowledge my responsibility that like we unlock opportunities for growth and success when we do that. And, and, and Facebook hasn't really had, that is not a big part of its culture of DNA right now. Interestingly, despite Facebook's hyper-focus on metrics, and my understanding is that this is part of Mark Zuckerberg's philosophy, might be part of the reason for his wild success is he's really metric-focused. There's also this now common, commonly known point that Facebook is considered uncool by kind of like anyone below the age of like 40 even, I would say, which doesn't bode well for its long-term success. And I'm curious if you agree with that assessment, if you think the focus on metrics has been a part of that. So I think the fact that they were not willing to acknowledge their power led them down this path. But I want to be really, really careful when we talk about this topic, because often I talk to people and they're like, do we really need to be talking about this? I mean, like everyone at the age of 40 thinks this is lame. Like doesn't mean, you know, people are going to age out, Facebook will die. The reality is the network effect. That's the idea that, that certain things, the more of your friends use them, the more valuable they become. The network effect is super, super baked in for like a billion, maybe even 2 billion people in the world. So if you go to a lot of African countries, South American countries, Southeast Asia, you see over and over again that, you know, for majority of languages in the world, 80 or 90% of all the content that exists on the internet in those languages exists exclusively on Facebook. And so in the United States, we may see people beginning to step back and step away because as more people who are less toxic step off the platforms, the platforms become more toxic. Like a lot of these things are like feeding in on themselves. That's okay. But we need to remember that there is a, there's like a billion people in the world, maybe more, who don't get to leave. And they live in places where Facebook is destabilizing their societies. We have now seen two major ethnic violence incidences. So that's Myanmar, where hundreds of thousands of people died. Ethiopia is the more recent one. And Facebook's safety strategies, focusing on AI censorship, does not scale to this larger linguistic diverse world. And as those very profitable United States users begin to step away, it doesn't mean this Frankenstein that's like thralling, like, you know, charging around, you know, vulnerable countries doesn't mean it goes away. It just means now there's even less cash to feed the beast. And so I do agree with you. It's going to become less and less culturally significant in the United States, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop trashing other countries. All right, Francis Haugen, thanks so much for coming on my show. Before I let you go, can you point my audience in the direction of any website or Twitter handle or books you have upcoming so they can follow your work if they're interested? Uh, so right now I have, I only have a Twitter account. I don't use social media as much as I should because I, <laughs> I, I do want to connect more with my audience. I'm planning on beginning to have a TikTok channel. I don't know the next few months. And I, I think there's a real opportunity to begin explaining the content of these documents in a, in a broader scale. There's also a hope bomb. So you should follow my TikTok handle, not TikTok, my Twitter handle, which is Francis Haugen. And uh, we'll also be announcing, uh, we're going to start doing public Q&As where people can ask questions and we'll, we'll probably stream those on Twitch. So that's still TBD. So follow me on Twitter for now. 
beyond that, thank you so much for inviting me today. It's always delightful to chat. All right. Take care. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.